people who grew up in one place, they can connect to the place in a very different way than those of us who are replanted to these places. I'm a Jew, and uh, in Moldavia at the time, uh, there were a lot of professions that you cannot really go to if you are a Jew. Or even if you go and study math, there will be a quota how many Jewish students they will accept into math, into the university. All the books were the same. So if you're in eighth grade, either you are in Kishinev, or you are in Moscow, or you are in Siberia, you are studying the same okay. textbook. And that, that's why it was kind of sometimes funny. You know, when you become a patient, you all of a sudden see a different reality. You know, the suffering and how it yeah. impacts people and how fragile we are. I stopped taking this failure as something that is wrong with me. Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is episode 30, an interview with Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department. This is the fourth episode in our four-episode segment on immigrants from Israel. What's special in today's episode is that our guest, Regina Barzilai, is a double immigrant. She grew up in Moldova, one of the republics of the Soviet Union, or USSR, back in the 1980s and 1970s. And we talk about the systematic discrimination against Jewish people that was built into the Soviet system back then. And Regina immigrated first from Moldova to Israel and then immigrated again to the US. You will hear Regina take my questions as a cue and narrate amazing stories from both Moldova and Israel. We also talk to Regina about her surviving breast cancer, and how she used it to define a new research program. That's coming up today. You may also enjoy the lead episode of this segment on Israel. That's episode 27, featuring three prominent computer scientists originally from Israel and who have been in the U.S. since the 1980s and 1990s. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player, and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. I'm delighted to welcome Regina Barzilai to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. Regina Barzilai is a professor at MIT in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department, EECS, and she's also a faculty at the MIT Jamil Clinic. She has been at MIT since 2003. 
Regina's research interests include machine learning models for molecular modeling with applications to drug discovery and clinical AI, and also topics in natural language processing. She's won many awards, and among them are the MacArthur Fellowship, also known as the Genius Grant, which she won in 2017. She was also nominated to the MIT Technology Review TR35 award list. This is given to promising technologists under the age of 35. She's a fellow of the American Association for the Artificial Intelligence, AAAI. She's also won a Microsoft Faculty Fellowship and an ACL Fellowship. More recently, in 2020, she was the first recipient of the $1 million AAAI Squirrel Award for Artificial Intelligence for the Benefit of Humanity. Previously, before becoming a professor at MIT, here is Regina's uh, timeline. She was born around 1970 in Moldova, a small country in Eastern Europe that borders Romania and Ukraine. Her first uh, migration was from Moldova to Israel around 1990 when she was aged around 20. In Israel, she received her BS in 1993 and MS in 1997 from the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Then uh, she immigrated a second time from Israel to the U.S. in 1997 to do her Ph.D., which she received from Columbia University in 2003. After that, uh, she did a postdoc at Cornell, uh, and then she joined MIT around 2003, where she has been and is currently a professor. In 2014, Regina was also diagnosed with breast cancer. She's a cancer survivor. After this experience, her research changed dramatically towards topics in health sciences and oncology. We'll talk about that as well in the podcast. Welcome, Regina, to the Immigrant Computer Scientist Podcast, and thank you for being willing to share your journey with us. We are delighted to have you join us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. So you were born around 1970 in Moldova, a really small nation in East Europe. Moldova, for our listeners, is a small nation that borders Romania and Ukraine. Uh, Moldova is uh, ranked 135th in area and 138th in population among about 200 countries in the world. That's a really small country. Uh, back then in the 1980s uh, and 70s and 80s, uh, when Regina was growing up, um, Moldova was part of the Soviet republics. Regina, what do you remember about Moldova from a very, very early years, very, very early childhood years? So I was born in Kishinev, which is the capital of Moldavia. I never felt that it was small uh, in territory. I felt it was pretty big. It has, you know, it had, you know, beautiful streets, a lot of uh, trees. That's what I remember: trees, buildings, um, and very sunny. Um, I loved it. I really loved it, and I never realized that it was so small and so remote. And also at the time. Uh, Moldavia was part of USSR, so then you were really part of like this very big nation. Um, and uh, I remember that it was really kind of funny uh, how being in Moldavia and being part of this big country impacts like even your uh, reading, because we read a lot of stories about you know snow and the forests with these big trees, but. You know, we did have a tiny bit of snow, but it's kind of you're reading about other country, but you're living in, in this very uh, small place, uh, as you know, as we can discover now. But I had, you know, I really love the city where I grew up. And since my family left it, I actually never came back. And I now relive those memories. And sometimes, uh, you know, we didn't have iPhone or pictures. The pictures are really like bad quality. I don't have many pictures of the city. You know, it all lives in my memory. Uh, and it's, you know, a memory, a lot of it is a memory of a child or, you know, a teenager. 
Um, and sometimes, you know, I try to look uh, on the web and see how it looks like now. So some parts I can recreate, some parts I cannot recreate. And sometimes it's really hard for me to imagine you know, what is it really a reality and what is only in my memory. You know, there was this world that very few people, you know, have the same experience as I did. And I'm sure there are people who grew up in the same time as I did, but I don't know any of those people since we left. Yeah. When you were going to school or middle school or so, what was a typical day like for you? In contrast to the United States, you know, since very early age, you are supposed to go on your own to school, you know, take your bus, uh, which is not a school bus, just a public transportation. Uh, I had this uniform, which was a long brown dress with a... uh, uh, you know, with a with some black uh, things that you put on top of it, and um, I was uh, from very early age. Um, I was, you know, a good student, and this was occupying my mind since the moment that I woke up until I went to sleep. Um, and um, you know, I always loved to study, but I also felt some extra stress of kind of being the best student. Uh, because um, I'm a Jew, and uh, in Moldavia at the time, uh, there were a lot of professions that you cannot really go to if you are a Jew, or even if you go and study math, there will be a quota how many Jewish students they will accept into math, into the university. So from very early age, it was very you know, it was clear to me that what my parents conveyed, that if I want to be able to choose what I will do after I graduate from school, I really have to excel in my studies. So in one hand, it was, that's what actually what I remember, if I'm not talking about the city, but what I remember about growing up, there was kind of two realities. On one hand, you're part of this big, happy country, and, you know, there is a communism, and we are all kind of uh, brothers and sisters. But on the other hand, there is also a very clear message that you are different. And uh, if you want to succeed, you have to excel, and you should work really hard because there is nothing else that will help you. So there is this, uh, it seems like a kind of an anti-quota reservation system. Was that intended only for Jewish peoples or were there like quotas for different kinds of ethnic groups in there? So at the time, there were like a Russian population that migrated to Moldavia Mm. after, you know, after the Second World War and there were like native population. And um, there was some really interesting way how they try to do engineering. For instance, when you're applying to schools, they wanted to select a certain number of people who would come from villages versus from the city and variety of, uh, you know, different kind of subgroup, uh, subgroup analysis. And, um, you know, at different points of uh, kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the history, different groups maybe had different advantage, but the Jewish group didn't have advantage through that whole mm-hmm. time. And this was so funny because when I arrived to Israel, people, uh, to, to, the first thing, you know, people would ask where you're from, and I would say I'm from Kishinev. And, and they immediately asked me about Kishinev pogroms. And I, and I was like, what is Kishinev pogrom? Actually, now if you do a Google search on Kishinev, this will be the first thing that come out. Right. 
this was this terrible events when you know the native population went and slaughtered um, you know a lot of Jewish families uh, for no good reason. It was at the beginning of 20th century. It was actually quite known uh, around the world. It was described, but we didn't know about any of that. And another interesting part about my childhood, you know, childhood is like my graduation that my history exam got cancelled because uh, <laughs> not only for me for the whole class because at the time you know there was this change in power and then everything started coming out about you know studying what he did and all the things so there was no way to do an exam because everything that was written in the books was uh total lies and uh, you know I, and this you know and you don't really process it until you become much older you know all these different things i still remember when brezhnev died uh, the teacher brought us not only our class the whole school you know sat in the in their corresponding classroom and you know they put this funeral which went like for 10 hours i mean so i mean mm. there is a coffin line somewhere and you know, there's processions of people going. So we were supposed to sit there and cry with tears for the whole school day. And, you know, it's like, why did we do it? You know, and nobody asked even, isn't it the most bizarre thing? So when I'm sometimes looking back at my childhood, there are all these very weird flashes of thinking, how that's even possible. But somehow, you know, you... You know, you make sense out of it or just because you grow up in it, it, it sounds logical, you know, until you leave the system and then it doesn't sound logical anymore. So the stories that you, I guess, read about Stalin and Brezhnev uh, in, in school, at what point of time did you start to realize that some of them were not true? Was it around this time, 1990, when the political realities changed or was it... Uh, over a longer period of time. Well, so I didn't realize it. And, you know, you obviously were extremely, uh, you know, not encouraged to talk or to think this way. You know, you, you wrote all these essays when we are saying the Communist Party did this or did that, and it's so amazing, and I'm so grateful for my amazing childhood. Um, but in 1987, uh, in 87, when, you know, the perestroika started, and then, you know, uh, Moscow kind of started opening up and then there was a whole flood of literature that came out about, you know, what really happens in Stalin's time because I had no clue, you know, <laughs> I studied history, there, it was nowhere in the books and uh, also, you know, your kind of very different view of, um, you know, what's actually going on because you were indoctrinated in it since early age and, um you are busy going about your life, but you don't ask these questions. And you know, the funniest part that I read in uh, 1984 when I was, uh, I think, 15 or 14 or 15, and I never connected <laughs> this book with, you know, the life that we were living in. I kind of saw that this is uh, other societies. It's not us. Um, so many times, you know, going through this, um, like when I'm now thinking about my childhood, how you can live in a lie, how you can explain to yourself, uh, make sense out of things that don't make sense. Um, you know, sometimes it really helps me to to interpret the current, sometimes the current reality in in a different light, and and be very yeah. skeptical about, you know, kind of the stories that is told to us. To, to have really to try to keep your own interpretation of the events. I want to ask a little bit about your parents. Did they grow up in the same town that you grew up or did they move from elsewhere? So my parents grew up in the same 
town. They came, their families came to this town after Second World War. My parents, my father actually was born during evacuation. The family evacuated to Siberia and he was born there and then they came back after the um, Second World War. And um, my mom's family also came from, you know, another part. Uh, uh, they actually came from uh, Western Ukraine and they came to, um, you know, to, to Kishinev and that's where my mom was born and that's where they grew up. Yeah, and were were either your mom or dad were they involved in science or engineering? No, absolutely not. Um, and I would tell you what was expectation of me when I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, you know, I, I was expected to be an excellent student, but um, in Kishinev, for somebody of my background, you know, the best type of career that you can imagine. I mean, you can be a teacher, you can you can do you can be an engineer, but you know, the most important part of life was actually to get married and find the right husband. Mm. So that what uh, I was groomed to be. So that was communicated to you from a very young age. Yeah. As you said, you were a good student, so you were interested. I presume you were interested in a lot of subjects, including science and math subjects. How did your parents react to this high level of interest, but also your, your really good um, progress in, in the classes? No, my parents always expected me that I would be the top student. There was no other um, explanation. I had to be the best student, and uh, I did well in all the subjects. Now, in contrast, now now my son goes to an amazing school in Boston, and, you know, there are so many different opportunities for enrichment. We didn't quite have that. You know, it's whatever you study at school, you have a textbook, there is no internet, whatever the teacher told you to do, you do it. But I think what... um, really changed my thinking about the world. My parents had like really a great library and I was reading a lot. And uh, again, because my parents were working until, you know, six or seven every day. So I would finish my school and come home. So I would do the homework, but I also had an opportunity to read. So I was reading a lot because there were not many other things that you can do with yourself. (laughs) So I really uh, enjoy reading and, um, uh, you know, le- learn a lot about, uh, you know, people and the world and um, kind of, you know, explore, explore different thoughts, things that you don't see in your daily life. So speaking of lang- books and language, I want to ask what languages were taught in school? What languages did you use at home? What languages did you use on the street with your friends? What languages were the books that you read in? So Moldavia had a very interesting history because it was kind of going back from Russia to Romania and the language, which is called Moldavian language, it's actually Romanian language that Russian made it right in the Cyrillic letters, but it's a Romanian language. Um, and again, at the time that it was part of USSR, it's kind of considered to be more high style if you are speaking Russian and the Russian schools were better schools. And I was placed into a Russian school and uh, it, it had... Uh, specialization in English, so I was studying English since early age. Uh, but uh, of course, it uh, you know you, you never hear English anywhere else but in class, so it limits how well you can study. Uh, but um, I was uh, speaking, uh, you know, with my friends and uh, with my family in Russian. But part of my family that actually came from Romania, they spoke Romanian. And my Romanian is extremely rusty because I didn't really practice it for decades. 
So you said your your mom was from that area, but your dad's family probably spoke Russian. Uh, no, no. Essentially, my my mom came from West Ukraine, and my I see. Um, so I have like Ukrainian family, and my father's family. Part of them lived in Romania. Part of them lived in Moldavia. So that part of the family actually did speak uh, between themselves in. Uh, Romanian or Moldavian, however you wish to call it. So now it's called Romanian, I think. And the textbooks that you used in school, especially science and math, physics, chemistry, uh, math, biology, were the textbooks in Russian? Were they in English? What languages were they in? They were all in Russian. There was nothing in English. In English, it's like, you know, Mm. the class that you were studying. That's it. Uh, All the books were in Russian. And in USSR, actually... All the books were the same. So if you're in eighth grade, either you were in Kishinev or you were in Moscow or you were in Siberia, you were studying the same textbook. And that's why it was kind of sometimes funny because they would describe some landscape or some setting of the problem which was completely unapplicable to the geography where you're located, but you still kind of said, okay, let's go with it. Yeah, because the USSR is a huge country with a variety of different geographies and with a variety of different topographies. Tribe, you know, it was built around the Russian population that lived in the central Russia, but then sent to everybody else. And literature that we studied, which I was very mm-hmm. lucky, we actually studied only Russian literature, which I greatly enjoyed. So moving forward in your timeline in the 1980s, as the USSR era policies are kind of winding down and Glasnost and Perestroika, which you mentioned earlier, are, are becoming more the mode, how did that, those changes affect your, the daily life of you and your family? And also, how did it affect the schooling? So at the time I already, so the mess started when in my last year of school, when, you know, on one hand, there was a perestroika and all these changes in how people thought and, you know, kind of this um, taste of real democracy. But on the other hand, in Moldavia, the situation really became terrible because they start fighting for independence. And as a result, Russia stopped supporting them economically. And the trade between Russia and Moldavia kind of broke up. And um, as a result, all of a sudden, like from very organized, safe society, it was total mess. It was unsafe to go out after five. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. Even basic things you cannot find in the store. People were without jobs and in masses because lots and lots of factories that were kind of building things in, you know, in collaboration with kind of Russian counterparts in Russia uh, stopped working. So mm-hmm. it was... It was really amazing. Within a few months, a society that was functioning became totally non-functional society and everybody were leaving. So the Jews were going to Israel or to, to the United States. You know, Russians were going to the main Russia. Ukrainians were going to Ukraine. So it was, you know, I remember I had this um, phone book and I would cross if the person is kind of out of reach because it was a physical yeah. phone. And all of a sudden, my book became like cross after cross after cross. And... Within very short time, everything changed around us. And I uh, originally, you know, when my parents started talking to me, because all my family already moved to Israel, all the other fam- big family. I was very sad and, you know, I had friends and, you know, I got used and I loved Kishinev. But, but at some point, it really was a new world. It's like you're staying in your, your own city, but it doesn't feel anymore like your own city. So I guess it helped uh, with the transition to the next step. Earlier, you mentioned the typical um, timeline expected of someone like you would be that you study well and then you get married. How did you mentally 
take that? Did you think, yeah, that might be a fine future for me? Or did you think, no, I definitely do not want that future. I'm going to work hard to prevent that from happening. What was your mental approach to that? No, I, I don't know if there's anything wrong with getting married. But the point is that this was a place where, you know, your career option, forget for a second a marriage, but your career option, what you can do. You know, if I would have stayed there, I would be a math teacher. Or maybe I would be some, you know, kind of engineer in some institute or something like this. The, the number of things that I could have done was extremely limited. You know, people, of course, were doing their job and were very sorry about this job. But, you know, I knew that, you know, being a Jew, my likelihood to ever be a scientist was close to zero. I wasn't even considering it as a career. You know, you kind of grew up and, you know, that's what I can get. And I will try to optimize within this set of opportunities. That's how I thought about it. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast interview with Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT, an immigrant from Moldova and Israel. So moving forward in your timeline, around uh, age 20, around 1990, your family moved from Moldavia to Israel. Um, this was around the time, as you mentioned earlier, that the USSR was breaking up and living in Moldavia was very, very difficult. And also it was around the time that Moldavia declared its independence as a republic independent of, of USSR. What were the conversations like in your family before making the decision to move? Or was it fairly natural just because everyone else, all your other extended family has moved? It's a natural thing. So everybody moved. <laughs> we were the last one. Everybody were moving. And also at the time, so we kind of decided we are moving. But then this war with uh, Israel and Iraq started. If you remember Saddam Hussein at the time threw some rocket yes. in Israel. Yes. So was all this mess. So we lived on the kind of empty <laughs> empty house with everything else somewhere uh, for, for months and months. And I didn't know when we actually can move um uh, to Israel, so it was this kind of situation that you are in, that you are not really in one place and not in another place. You are mm -hmm. in in places. It continued for, uh, for for some time, and then eventually we moved. And um, I don't really, you know, remember my thought process. It's just, I just remember this waiting because you you really don't know yeah. what's to come next. <laughs> Yeah, sounds like the family was in limbo for a while. You had um, packed up everything from your old home. You were ready to move to Israel, but then you were kind of stuck in the middle waiting for things to stabilize in Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the, the worst part of it, the, the situation in Moldavia was becoming actually worse and worse every day. <laughs> but that's, uh, the, it wasn't, you know, it's interesting that when I'm like remembering the, my time there, there's some periods which I really remember in greatest detail. But this period, I kind of remember a gray period and living in an empty house. So at that time, you had, I presume you had already finished high schooling. Uh, what was your educational status at that time? So I finished high school and I did, I think, one year in the university. I was studying math. Uh, I did I one year in the university. And then, you know, when we kind of declared that we are moving, I had to withdraw from university and we were sitting and waiting until I can actually mm -hmm. move. Mm. So the the university in Moldavia that you went to, what was the admission process to that? Uh, like, was there an entrance exam or was it just based on school grades? 
So uh, you need to do several entrance exams to get in. And it was some of these exams were written, some of them were oral exams. And uh, I got a gold medal. Gold medal means uh, that you get, you know, five, which was the highest score in all the subjects. And, and if you get it all in an external examination, then you can actually get into the university if you get five on your first entrance exam. So you don't need to do three if you have this gold medal and you have the first entrance exam with number five, then you are in. And um, the assumption was that if you're doing the oral exam, it's much easier to kind of kill you because you are Jew. So you really need to make sure that you're passing the written exam with full grade. And that's what mm. I did. And it was very, very stressful to make sure that I do get this full grade. So you uh, you knew that one particular kind of exam, the oral exam, would be much harder for you because of your ethnicity and because of your being Jewish. And so you had to excel in one and that, that created some amount of pressure. Yeah, and, and got this gold medal, which was like an obsession from yeah, early age okay. because you had because this gold medal is actually sort of your entrance to, to the university. Right. I mean, there were lots of universities right. and a kind of um, institution of high learning. Some of them were really not great, right. so you could get somewhere. But if you want to right. select where you want to go, at least to some extent, you really have... To be uh, to get you know this gold medal was helping, so that's why I was really working very hard to get it. So moving forward in your into your first immigration from Moldavia to Israel, your entire family moves over successfully. Uh, what do you remember about those first few months in Israel? So it was you know it was really beautiful. It, it was so very different from Moldavia because it was like sunny uh the buildings were very different because like in moldavia like uh, in, at least in kishinev because it was all you know planned by the all this uh you know communist government it was very well organized the structure and so on you know uh israel has a lot of flavor of kind of crazy middle east so it's like all these different buildings and uh you know like food people sell it on the street very very different um and uh, it was really exciting. I found a lot. Of, I, I love plants. So I found a lot, a lot of um, plants that I didn't see that were, you know, there were these different smells and different colors. And people looked very different because I grew up with an idea because where, you know, I grew up, the Jewish people look kind of similar to how I look. Uh, but in Israel, there was a whole mix, you know, there were Jewish people like from Morocco and from India and they were, they just look very different. Uh, there were a lot of diversity. Um, there were totally different smells. So it was really exciting and, um, so exciting and scary. Scary? No, scary, not in the sense, I mean, it was very peaceful times. You know, when we arrived, it was a time that I think, uh, you know, like one million people, uh, Russian, not Russians, I mean, I'm not Russian, but uh, people from USSR moved within yeah. like two years or something to Israel. At the time, it, it, it was pretty tough because even with a desire to help, you know, you have such a huge influx in the population and it was really not clear to me how, you know, we're going to survive economically. I came from a family right. which was, you know, upper middle class family. And, um, you know, I never really thought very hard how my parents, you know, how, how the money comes. Or, and all of a sudden, you're really starting in the very, very bottom. 
it's it's scary and also I saw I still remember you know there were people on the street um who came you know from somewhere from USSR who were like playing music and it's clear clear that it's classically trained trained musicians or you know there were a lot of people who really would take any job uh, that will pay the bills and in some ways it's fine of course we all need jobs but it was such a humongous shift and and people right. the, all these newcomers um on one yeah. hand very different from the native population on the other hand they tried to get into the society and it wasn't an easy entrance did your parents have an easy or difficult time finding new jobs in israel yeah so my parents actually had very tough like everybody else so you know my parents came after they were 40s uh and at that time, you know, the likelihood that you're going to work based on your, um, you know, profession was close to zero, unless you have some connection or something like this. And I remember we found an apartment, uh, you know, in some city near Tel Aviv. And my father found a job, you know, like everybody feel we, we have to find something so we can, you know, we can pay the bills. And my father went to work in the gas station. And he actually worked on this gas station, I think, for 12 mm. years. Working 12 hours a day because, you know, every penny wow. that will, uh, you know, he can bring, he will do it. And, and my mom, you know, eventually we kind of found her job to be, uh, I helped her. I went with her, a cashier in a supermarket, in a fancy supermarket. Um, and she also worked there until her retirement. But they found these jobs. Um, and I uh, went, when we arrived, uh, I went to be in a kibbutz. Kibbutz, it's like... A, Mm-hmm. collective uh, agricultural, you know, commune where people, you know, live together. They don't only do agriculture, they may have some small uh, businesses. So uh, I went to the north uh, on my own after like a few weeks after we arrived. And I pretty much stayed there for several months until I learned Hebrew. Yeah, I was going to ask about language because you you grew up speaking Russian and Moldavian and here was language an issue and I think you said that you learned Hebrew kind of kind of in the in the kibbutz itself. Yeah, so the kibbutz had these programs that you come and you get a, like a room in a dorm and they feed you that is like a general communal uh place where everybody eats like both natives and uh you know people like us who were guests or visitors. And uh we were doing like half a day work. Uh, and uh, then there will be few hours of studying Hebrew. So on one, on one, on you know, on one hand, you are speaking Hebrew at your workplace because you are part of the you know general group of people that speak Hebrew, and also you do some study in the class. So within like two months, I was pretty fine. I could speak pretty well. Yeah. So moving forward um, to your university, at, I presume that at this point you were you are still thinking, okay, you know, I I did one year of university in Moldavia, I need to restart that. Was that your thinking in going to the Ben Gurion University? It was clear to me yeah. that I'm gonna go. Like this was the first thing I knew that it is like a temporary yeah. thing that I do. I was doing variety of things in that uh, kibbutz, like collecting almonds, or I was. Um, uh, you know, assembling like electronic boards, variety, whatever is needed, you know, they put you, you do the work. 
And then I, but, but I got into the university and I didn't have money to apply to many. So I applied just to two universities, to Ben-Gurion, which is in the South, and to Tel Aviv. Mm. And I got to both. And, you know, I, mm. at the time, didn't even know that, you know, that Tel Aviv is considered academically better than Ben-Gurion. But I went to Tel Aviv. And I had two thoughts in my mind. The first one, that it looks like super fancy place. Uh, and I would not feel comfortable there. And the second one was that if I'm going to be a student in Tel Aviv, I would have to live with my parents because, they, they, you know, I would need to commute, but it's possible. So that's why I went to Ben Gurion um, and I started my schooling. So pretty much uh, within like you know, maybe half a year, I was already a student and I was taking my notes in Hebrew and studying. Uh, that's very interesting that uh, some people, they decide to go to college very close to their parents and, and, and you thought, oh, maybe, you know, a farther place is better. Yeah, I think it's not like necessarily farther from the parents. You know, I, 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 first of all, I kind of already felt pretty independent that I went to live in the kibbutz, but also I already lived far, far, far away from them. But also, you know, in, in their apartment, it was like a small apartment and there was my parents and my grandparents and there was not even clear that there would be a place for me to sit and study. And, but on the other hand, I would not feel comfortable ever to use money to, to rent something on my own. So I just thought if I go there and live right. in the dorm, then it's fine. Let's talk a little bit about the computer science education itself. When was the first computer that you used? So I didn't actually use computers for real until I came back to Ben Gurion. <laughs> Isn't mm-hmm. that funny, correct? Um, and even my like when I decided to study, I thought I'm going to study computer science. Uh, I'm going to study math because that's what I did. I thought I'm going to go and study math, and I did my undergrad. I completed my undergrad in math. And continue with the same level of thinking about being a teacher. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, also did like teaching certificate, um, and uh, and I was working uh, because I needed you know to pay my bills. I was also working after like during my second year, I started working as a teacher in high school uh, in kind of uh, area which with significant socioeconomic challenges. Let's put it this way. So I was a high school teacher there. This was during your bachelor's or during your master's? During my bachelor's. During my bachelor's. bachelor's. Because, you know, obviously I could not have found the job even in Beersheba or in another city because, uh, you know, you need to have your undergrad. But in that place, there were lack of teachers. So I was able to go and find at the end of my undergrad to go and work there as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So there was no significant difference in age between me and my students. Right. And so you, your first computer, you used it sometime during your, your bachelor's uh, program. During my bachelor's degree, I, I had an exam, I had a class, I remember it was called numerical analysis. And yeah. um, we had to walk in the lab because we did, I did clearly, right. I didn't have a computer at home. So, you know, I, this was the first time I did MATLAB and um, I, start, I, I took this class. And then what happened was I, uh, you know, I did my, um, you know, I taught one year and I liked it. And then I started teaching the second year. I already graduated, you know, I had a degree, I graduated. And then I realized that actually I don't quite see myself teaching until the end of my biological life. Um, 
because you know it's the same material so you whatever you teach this year then you teach the same book next year maybe you know in israel at least at the time there were clear rules you know which materials you can use so it's not like you can select a book and teach according whatever you like you, you know there's a textbook you're teaching based on the textbook and then I realized, you know, maybe it's not what I want to do at all. Um, uh, it's fine. I don't mind teaching and doing something else, but not just teaching all the time uh, the same stuff. And, uh, and at the time, I was trying kind of to discover if I can go, because in my university, math and computer science were the same department. And I right. was actually asking, can I, you know, is it possible for me to study or to take classes or do something in computer science? And it will, because you already graduated with undergrad from our department, you cannot take undergraduate classes. But you can sign up for master in computer science. And that's how I end up going to master's in computer science. And they told me you can take the same classes that you wanted to take, but you just need to write a thesis. And... Um, I said, okay, and um, it was at the time a small university, and I was looking around and thinking, you know, who will take me to write a thesis? And, you know, today we, of course, advise our students that you need to look at, you know, what kind of papers a professor writes and um, uh, how are your research interests match with them. I just remember I liked my teacher in computer architecture, and I, I really liked him. And I asked him, is it possible that you take me, you know, as your student? And he told me, yeah, but my research is in natural language processing. I said, okay. You know, I had no clue what is natural language processing. I said, okay, why not? And that's how I started doing research. So that was your first taste of research. You did no research in your bachelor's, but because you wanted to study computer science, you started working with this person. Forced to do a thesis. That's the beginning. Mm. Because before that, I never thought of doing research again. I was in this mm. mentality, I'm going to be a teacher until mm. I tried it. And, yeah. uh, and, and at that point, I, just, I was pretty much forced to do the thesis because there was no other way for me to study computer science. And... Um, that's how I end up selecting natural English processing. And then you start doing research. Um, are there elements of the research style or the research work life that immediately speak to you, that immediately attract you? So the thing that immediately attracted me, and it was very wild time in natural language processing, because it was like 90 596. So the whole yeah. field was really moving from this very heavy symbolic, you know, grammar based view on language to statistical modeling. So it was more on the still kind of symbolic to more empirical approach to language. And at the time, I remember when we took natural language processing class, which is like nothing, nothing close to what we're studying today, there was not even one thing that you can look at and say, um, uh, you know, it, it's working. Like today, you know, my, my son knows uh, what is machine translation, what is question answer, just because he uses it. But there was really nothing. It was kind of like theoretical discipline. And yeah. uh, the things that excited me about it, that my advisor gave me this problem text summarization. I didn't know nothing about it, but I started working. And then you start programming, and then you actually can see something coming up. But it was really a very much like exciting feeling that you can take it in any direction and there is really no constraint and the only constraint is what you know you test your ideas and that you see what comes out and you have this unlimited freedom which you don't necessarily have you know when you're like doing projects for the class 
because mm -hmm. there it's clear where you should arrive. But when you're doing research, you know, the field is open and you can push it in any direction. So that's what I really liked about it. I didn't realize that I'm really doing research, but um, that was my beginning. And so as you start liking research, is that the time that you start thinking consciously, hey, maybe I want to do a PhD, maybe research is a career for me? You see, this is funny. I didn't. The reason I ended up going to be, so I wrote this paper and it was very well received. I went to, actually, I went to Madrid, to ACL in 97, and mm -hmm. it was totally magical. This was, again, the time when the field was changing, when half of the yeah. talks were symbolic and half of the talks were statistical. And I still remember some talks. I remember that room and it wasn't, like, I don't know, a few hundred people, not like thousands like today. And there were some really amazing talk, and they were so thought-provoking and so different. And I also loved Madrid. And I said, wow, this should be really exciting life. You know, you're kind of doing what you want to do, and you can think wild thoughts, and there are all these very interesting research directions. And I really um, would be excited to learn, and, you know, the world is really large. Um, um, uh, but I have to tell you that when I went and I gave a talk, what happened to me, uh, you know, I gave a talk in this workshop, um, that, I, you know, I couldn't really speak English. I mean, I can sort of speak English, but I, I could write mm. English, but I could or read, but, but my conversational English was on the weaker side. And what I did, uh, when I prepared my talk, for every slide, uh, you know, together with my advisor, Mike, uh, his name is Michael El Haddad, together with my advisor, I kind of wrote on every slide what I need to say. It was like real. The script, yes. Yeah, yeah. so I wrote the script with these physical slides, which I had in my box. And I learned it, you know, I truly learned it by heart. And I would repeat it like 10,000 times to make sure that I'm smooth. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, now... You know, you give so many talks, like tomorrow I'm supposed to give a talk and NCI, ah, you know, I didn't even start putting the slides together. Uh, but, uh, you know, but I spent like days preparing for the talk at any rate. So I'm arriving to this workshop and I see everybody giving such a fantastic talks. And then I'm standing up and I start, you know, going through my slides. And then in the middle of the presentation, I forget the next word. And I stand, and, you know, everybody look at me, and I'm quiet. And it's, uh, I, I, maybe they saw that I want just to make a point, but I really got stuck in the middle of the sentence, and I couldn't remember what is the next thing to say. And then at some point, I decided that I should move forward since I cannot stand there quietly. So I just moved to the next slide where I remember what I need to say and continued my presentation. And this was like, I felt it's horrifying. I felt that everybody saw that I was total, total moron. But it was not the end. The, the next thing is that they told me that I have to be on the panel. So I didn't realize what panel exactly means. And then they put me with the various researchers who were like senior researchers. I was just a master's right. student. Um, right. And you're supposed to speak English <laughs> on the panel. But luckily, in front of me, there was a man who just couldn't stop talking. And the whole, he pretty much took the whole panel. And God bless <laughs> him, I didn't have to speak. So I felt really terrible. I really felt that I'm a failure. I was an embarrassment. And um, uh, I, I really, you know, I saw that it was pretty much the end of my academic career. But though I liked it very much, but I thought this is the end. Mm. 
And how did you cope in the days after that when you have this kind of negative feeling that, hey, you know, what I did here was a complete bust, uh, but really it's not. I mean, I think most of the presentation went fine. How did you mentally cope with that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it takes time. Time actually, you know, helps you to address all the problems that you have in life. So, you know, at the time you go out and um, the the only thing that I did, the lesson that I learned, I you know, the, the amount of time that I spend preparing on the talk, for my next talk, I triple the time. And I actually land every slide independently. If somebody shows me the slides, I know what to say. Obviously, my English became better when I moved to the States, but this was my main lesson. You're listening to the interview with Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT, an immigrant from Moldova and Israel. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. And um, and when I came back to Israel, within like I think a month or two, my um, then husband uh, decided. So so he went to Cornell. He was a PhD student at Cornell, and he started there before I was still in Israel. He started at Cornell. I see. And then I. Um, Decide, you know, then I, at some point, I finished my master's and then I had to go to Ithaca, New York, where, you know, you've been as well. And I was a yes. white. So I was a white. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of rented an apartment, which was very, it's near the airport, which is like far from the mm-hmm. city. So I was sitting there the whole day mm-hmm. <laughs> with my own thoughts and thinking what I want to do next. And... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and at some point, so I found a job as a programmer and I was doing it for a few months, but I realized it's not what I want to do. Um, and yeah. um, and uh, and then I uh, was approached, or I approached, I don't remember how it came about, but the advisor of my master's advisor, Michael El-Kadar, was Professor Kathy McEwen, who worked at Columbia and we somehow connected. She actually saw this paper. She luckily didn't hear me presenting, but she saw the paper. The paper was kind of getting some traction. And she suggested me to apply to Columbia. And I applied in the middle of the year. I started in Columbia in January, in January 1998. Mm. And I just Mm. moved there and started my PhD. Mm. That's a very interesting story, a very unusual way of entering the PhD program because the typical story is do your bachelor's or do your master's and then you apply for a PhD. But you spend this one year essentially... Um, bored, as you said, right? <laughs> it was maybe half a year that I was bored. It's half not bored. I was working as a programmer, but I was thinking, is right. that what I want to do? And uh, right. uh, I decided it's not what I want to do. And then I moved to New York and started my PhD. Right. And you asked me earlier the question, you know, did I, you know, if I would not end up being in the States, you know, uh, would I decide to do a PhD? I, I don't know, you know, but it was just mm. I was in a situation and I made a choice. It's it's very interesting always that a lot of career decisions are not conscious decisions. They just happen by chance or happen because of other um, auxiliary things happening in life. Absolutely. And you know, like I am looking at my, now I'm doing admissions to my PhD program and I'm reading these amazing, amazing people, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, they, they look so much more brilliant and so much more accomplished 
that I was at that point of my life. Um, but, you know, somehow it worked out and I started my PhD at Columbia. So um, I want to ask a little bit about your experience, to compare your experience of the first immigration from Moldavia to Israel and then your second immigration from Israel to U.S. They were under very different circumstances. And, of course, the countries are also very different. Did you, do you feel that the first immigration prepared you for, again, the culture shock that you would face in your second immigration? I, I didn't think of it as an immigration because I was planning to go back to Israel and still my family is in Israel and very connected to Israel. So I cannot mm-hmm. really consider them. I'm, I, I, you know, I have dual citizenship, but I'm kind of in between the two countries, which is quite different situation with Moldavia that I never visited since we left. Um, yeah. But the first immigration, it was really a culture shock. And part of it is because, you know, the country was really flooded with these new immigrants, which were poor, which looked very different, which, you know, didn't have kind of the polish of, uh, you know, people from more Western society. And... Uh, you know, it's kind of bizarre to think, but there were a lot of people, um, you know, on one hand, there were a lot of people who helped, like really helped. And I still remember there was a neighbor living near my parents' house. When I visited yeah. on the weekend, I had to write some very long paper in Hebrew. And I just came and asked the lady who lived nearby to help me, uh, like to mm. make sure that I write, you know, in the right language. And, and she helped. She just sat with me and helped when I, mm. you know, with the paper. People helped in many, many ways. But when I came to the States, you know, I came in a different class. I came as, you know, educated person who, you know, whose at least husband is in PhD. I was going to PhD. It's all different things. When we went to Israel, I was in the very bottom of, you know, kind of social, um, uh, you know, hierarchy. Uh, In a sense, you know, you know, people would, uh, you know, can say to you something because you're Russian, which was kind of funny because I wasn't Russian, but, uh, you know, you're mm-hmm. Russian. People will make jokes about your accent and this would be mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, you know, you would be considered kind of some non-refined uh, person. And, you know, one story that I remember and I cannot leave it from my memory to this day that I went to visit... Uh, with my then husband, some friends of his who were from very educated family. And when, you know, when we were chatting, a really beautiful house and a lot of books. And uh, I took uh, the uh, newspaper, which was like New York Times. It was a New York Times. It was the Israeli newspaper. And and it had the culture supplement. And I started reading it. At the time, I already, you know, was doing my master's. I was a teacher. So my Hebrew was, you know, pretty reasonable. And then the mother of um, his friend, who was a very nice woman, came to me and said, wow, Regina, I cannot believe it that you're reading it. I said, why? So it's about culture. Like the expectation is that you would not even look at it. You know, like people kind of discount you because of, you know, how you look like or because of your class. I didn't feel it in the United States at all. And this was the hardest piece to cope because you are always in somewhat you know, diminishing uh, role and you need to prove yourself that you right. are like others. And, um, and, 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 and I think that in some ways, you know, in the United States, at least, you know, that's how I perceive it. 
there is not much pressure that you forget who you are and you're going to be all part of the same. You know, there is like Chinatown and people in Chinatown can, you know, speak their language, have their shops. Well, in Israel, due to the fact how the country was built, that, you know, if everybody will stay the same, then there will be no um, nationality. Uh, there is this push to kind of be like Israeli. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't feel it when I came to the U.S. I, I felt I could totally stay the same. Though, though, uh, there were some really funny, um, funny uh, parts that, you know, but, but, but at this point, I just laugh at them. I, I don't feel in any way, you know, bad about them. And um, the funniest story that happened to me uh, was I went with... Uh, one of the faculty, we went to a conference uh, in LA and um, we went to pick up, you know, we wanted to take a cab to, to the hotel. So yeah. I went and asked the person in the information in the airport, you know, where, where the taxis are. And that person started talking to me and he talks very, very slowly, you know, one word mm -hmm. a minute. And, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I am trying, and, and then my, uh, you know, um, my partner who was with me, uh, this professor, he, he he kind of interrupted and said, no, 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 just tell me. And then the guy starts to speak normally. And I felt, wow, he's really rude interrupting because maybe the person has a disability. And But then the person started, you know, speaking totally okay. And it's like, what happened? Uh, and the guy, because I have an accent so that I cannot no. understand normal English. When I was late 15 years, Professor at MIT. And uh, the book that really resonates with me, uh, and when I read it, it was like as if, you know, somebody yeah. who wrote parts of my life is a book, Americana, uh, by Ngozi, which describes, you know, this experience when you are an immigrant but you're an educated immigrant and she describes it is like a story in the book which is very parallel to it that she when she entered some college uh uh, she, uh, not she, I mean, the, the heroine of that uh, book comes and tries to uh, talk to admission officers and they also talk to her in a very slow and bizarre way until she realizes that they actually talk normally to all the other people in the queue. <laughs> uh, so, so there are these funny things, but I never yeah. took them very personally. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting always thinking of the assumptions and prejudices that others have about immigrants. I think that's where um, that's where a lot of this comes from. Along similar lines, I want to ask you a little bit about um, being a woman in the computing or in the math field. I mean, as as you know, in computing here and in math here the fraction of women is very small in the U.S. What was it like in uh, Moldavia and then also in, in Israel? So actually in Moldavia, you know, it's part of these tales that you believe with, but they kind of, that men and women are equal, even though, you know, when you look at their communist party, like even today it's not exactly equal when you look at many forms, but we grew up with an idea that, you know, there was no misconception that women are, was in men in mass. In fact, in my class, you know, the girls were doing better. And in Israel, somehow, you know, in computer science, I would not say it was half and a half, it wasn't. But again, there was no perception ever that, you know, I'm in some ways inferior to the guys 
in my class. I start hearing it when I actually arrive to the States that there are different, um, that there are differences and, uh, you know, you, you should be, you, you know, there are all these preconceptions that exist. So I don't think that it really impacted me in terms of like my development in computer science. I think hmm. you know, I get all the support and benefit that I you know, could from the society that really helped me. So I would say hmm. I didn't experience it, you know, as a young scientist, maybe in some ways I started experiencing actually later in my research career rather than when I was younger. Hmm. How was that? Like, I realized maybe, you know, it's a combination of being an immigrant and a woman and outspoken, you know, it's many, many things. So um, in certain places where you just need to convince people, to like, let's say you're trying to push some agenda in a meeting, which you believe is the correct one, in some places, so you're talking to some funders, and in some places it's like a known bias, correct? We kind of can understand better people which are like us. Uh, this is yeah. our you know, inherent bias and we need to walk against this bias. But, you know, sometimes I feel because I'm so different from them in everything, in how I speak and how I think, um, either I need to try to adjust and understand better how they're thinking, which is a good thing, you know, you're adjusting. Or in some places to say it's fine, you know, I cannot play by their rules. I'm going to lose in some places, but it's okay. Going back a little bit to my question, uh, the other aspect of it I was trying to ask is, were the fraction of women that you saw in um, in Israel in computing and math, was it different? Was it higher, lower than the fraction you saw in the U.S. and also Moldavia as well? I never actually thought about this question very mm. much. Like, you know, there were women in my immediate capacity, uh, in my immediate environment right. when I studied in my undergrad and in my master's and I did homeworks with them. I never perceived this kind of unique thing. There were enough of them. Mm. And... Mm. Uh, when I came to to MIT, there were two other women who started with me, which is Professor Dina Katabi, who is another amazing yeah. immigrant, and Asos Daglark, who is now the head of our department, who is also an immigrant. And um, Dina, we were on computer science side. It was Dina and me, Asos is electrical engineering. And it was really helpful to have a peer, which is in your academic age, uh, that we kind of went through the tenure time and kind of building our research group. So this was really of tremendous help. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast interview with Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT, an immigrant from Moldova and Israel. So moving forward in the timeline, I want to ask a little bit about your um, experience in the around 2014 when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. The diagnosis for any kind of cancer is usually a very slow-moving process with many tests over a long period of time. You usually never know, okay, you know, this is, this is it. It's usually, okay, let's try the next test. Uh, how did you mentally react to that at that stage in your career where you're already tenured, you already have a research group, uh, and you already have a family, uh, but mentally, how did you react to that? 
So uh, this was like the biggest shock of my life because I was healthy. You know, the only time I was in the hospital is when I gave birth to my son. And, you know, I couldn't believe it because they always see it's one in eight, but you always think that you are the seventh one because I never had any cancer in my family. And, you know, I did mammogram. They told me go and do the mammogram. I did the mammogram. But, you know, I never expected that we're going to hear something different. So I, I still remember, you know, I went to... So I did several mammograms, and then on the third year of doing me and doing mammograms, I remember I went to Mount Auburn. This is a hospital. It's funny because mm. Mount Auburn is both a hospital and the cemetery at Cambridge. <laughs> so you need to qualify. It's a hospital. They're close to each other. It was a hospital, so I went there. And I remember they sort of told me, you know, um, you have something, let's just just in case go and do biopsy and uh, I said okay and uh, I was really stressed it was like tremendously stressful and yeah. um, I yeah you, you know I don't think that I actually ever seen anybody who and, and it's not true I've seen some people but I've seen some people not very close people but I've seen people and uh, yeah. it was uh, it was very stressful then I did one biopsy, it was the end of April, and um, I pretty much knew what will be fully my course of treatment by the end of July. Mm. So there was something mm. in the middle, but like by the end of July, I knew I'm going to have chemo, and I started my chemo. Uh, but mm. until then, I didn't know. So I, it was really bizarre times. It was on one hand, you know, I go through all these medical tests. I didn't say anything to my students because, you know, I sort of, I would tell them when I know what's going right. on, but I didn't know what's going on. And uh, one of my students won Best Paper Award in ACL during that, he, mm -hmm. during that time. And, you know, and they're so mm -hmm. happy. And it's like, yeah. who cares? But I try to be nice and I mm -hmm. uh, showed my excitement. And then, you know, and then you just go. The, the hardest part is actually when you don't know. Because once you know, you know, you, you have like physical pains and uh, stuff, but at least the, the course is clear. And so at, at any point, did you think that... Um, did you think that, well, um, maybe I only have a few years left or was the course of the treatment clear to you uh, from the diagnosis point? So you really don't know. You really don't know. Like at the moment that you hear the word cancer, you hear this is, this is the end. And, you know, you, you stop believing the doctor because, you know, what is your chance? Your chance is tiny. And all of a sudden they tell you, you have it and say it's, it's you know, 99% that you're fine. What exactly does it mean? You know, I was at tiny percent. So you stop believing the numbers. You forget probability uh, as applied to you. And you always expect the worst. And, um, and, and you know, like first, it's like there are periods. There is a period when you try to understand what exactly do you have? Because it takes a while. You need to do, you know, some lumpectomy. They analyze it, whatever. It takes right. a while. So you kind of leave to the next test, to the result of the next test. Then when that part is done, when you know the the real serious chemo starts, you are really in a messed up state. I think in the following way because you don't know what's to come. On one hand, on the other hand, you know usual life as you know when you just go to work and you do your stuff and you go back um, is sort of messed up. But the treatment in some ways kind of consuming that you at the end you just need mm -hmm. to do one day at a time and that's what you do. You do one day at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So for um, th there are many researchers and industry professionals who um, who are cancer survivors, and as you said earlier, there is no manual for how to deal with this. Are there things you learned through your experience, uh, things that you did right or things that you didn't do that you would recommend our listeners if they ever have to face such a situation? Mm, I don't think there is a universal advice because people deal with these situations uh, in a very different way. And uh, I think I was really, for better or for worse, you know, I was already, you know, in 43 uh, when I got it. And I feel, you know, this experience extremely matured me. And maybe, uh, you know, the listeners are much more mature than me at age 43. Um, mm. It really changed my understanding and perception of the world. Um, and um, there is a period when you feel it very acutely. As again, time is a healer. When time goes by, you know, things change. But there are still, you know, a lot of parts that, you know, it, it just changes how you look at the rest, uh, at the rest of your life after, you know, mm -hmm. after going through this experience. And, you know, and the, the part that, you know, you kind of discover there is this other world. Because when we are living in academia, you know, we are totally stressed. Or oh, is the paper getting in? Or oh, did I get this grant? Yeah. Or oh, did my student got this job? Or didn't get the job? Or whatever. This is really, really important. And um, and you need to be really serious about it, correct? Uh, to, to really push yeah. the boundaries and really think very hard about the problems. And in some ways, I think we're, I'm sort of saying, I would say I, I wouldn't say we, I would say I, infantile because you know you live in this kind of artificial world where a lot of real problems of real people are really never enter your life because you have a very organized life of course if there is a stress in papers and uh, and you know when you become a patient you all of a sudden see a different reality you go you know these treatments uh, like radiation and other they you know happens every day you see these people, you see a lot of sick people. You was like, how come I didn't know that these communities exist? You know, I, I was not aware, you know, the suffering and how yeah. it impacts people and how fragile we are. So this was my big eye opening when I went through this treatment. And it's funny because MIT and MGH, I just, you know, it's, it's a, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes mm -hmm. walk, one subway stop away, but such yeah. a different world. Yeah, certainly your experience changed uh, the kinds of research problems that you work on, uh, you know, your your work with MIT Jamil Center and your other work that is about oncology. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that work that you've been doing recently? Yeah, so actually when I came back, um, I, I really kind of, it was rethinking, you know, you're coming back to the mm -hmm. world, your hair starts growing back. Um, but it takes much longer to actually become your normal self. And I started asking myself, you know, how come I am doing this stuff? And I, like one of the topics that I really like is working on undeciphered languages, which doesn't have any practical meaning whatsoever, yeah. but it's really, you know, intellectually extremely interesting task. And I, and I did some work. I really enjoy reading about it. And I was thinking, you know, what is my right to work on this when there are lots of people who you know, don't benefit from technology. And you discover how much technology doesn't enter this world when you're part of that world. Because you can't imagine even the simplest question that you want to ask, tell me what happened to the patients like me in this hospital? They can give you some general statistics. But if you want to ask if women of this age with this particular, what happened? Even the information is electronic medical record, like what's the problem? 
People cannot do even that. So there are a lot of things that they cannot do that they should be doing. And many times you as a patient, you know, you say, oh, you can do A or you can do B. It's up to you to decide. But how can you decide if you don't have the information to make the decision, correct? Um, and at that point, when I came back, I felt... I. It's not like I was not interested in NLP. You know, I still had a group and I... But my mind was like, what can I do to change it? It was like, I went through it. I have, I have a mandate. I have to change it. And then I started going around and around these places and asking different doctors, what can I do? And Mm. um, uh, typically, you know, being, you know, a professor, you kind of, you know, you're like a prima donna. You come, oh, oh, I, oh, thank you. Thank you so much that you want to work with me. Here yeah. I'm playing, knocking on all the doors and nobody cares. And it's like, we're doing yeah. great. Thank you very much. And it took me a while until I found, you know, what I can do um, to, to make, uh, you know, to what I felt to make a difference. Um, and uh, since then, I pretty much changed the whole direction of my research. Uh, because it's not only about, like, taking the tools that we develop and applying it to medical data. You really need to have absolutely new machine learning, um, you know, algorithms to solve the real problems, not just to do something. You can do something. There, there are a lot of problems that you can solve just by taking what is out there and applying it. But there are like millions of problems for which we don't have a good computational solutions. And, you know, and the longer I am in it, the more I see these big issues. It's very interesting. Changing a research area is always tough, and changing one to a very applied research area is even tougher. And as you said, you went and knocked on many doors before you finally came to, I guess, a set of problems you wanted to work on and a set of people who would work with you. I guess the takeaway for me is to be persistent um, from your experience. No, I want to, co- to correct you. The, mm-hmm. What I actually saw to myself, and that's why I never worked on clinical uh, NLP mm-hmm. or whatever, because I thought it's like apply thing. It's like people who cannot, you know, it, it was really obnoxious of me to think. So I said people who cannot really compete on the methods in NLP, they just take an existing tool in NLP and apply it to medical records and get uh-huh. some paper. This is not the case. Uh, like, okay, you can, you can do it and you can even get out something. But like, if you're thinking like in 2017, um, one of the topics that I started actually in, I started in 16, but in 17, there was a first paper, um, Tommy Yakala and I, and our students at MIT, we started working on modeling small molecules. And, um, this area was really not part of kind of core machine learning. We know that the machine learning, there are methods, there is natural processing, there is computer vision. There was even, you know, sequencing stuff. But modeling the molecules and their properties and other things, it wasn't there. I had to beg my students to work on it because they said, you know, it's mm-hmm. not really machine learning. And since then, this field uh, really grew. And there is a lot of new methods work. How do you represent correctly the molecules? Is, you know, graph convolution is the right way to go. Uh, we've seen, you know, the amazing uh, advancement that happened on the, you know, on the protein. Models. This is a very, very active field that really changes. Super exciting field. And uh, it's not, I mean, yeah, it has an application, but research itself in this field is actually very much methods driven. Um, and, you know, in this case, the reason I think, you know, I could jump into it mm, relatively easy because the field didn't really exist at the time. You know, this was a similarity with yeah. NLP, that when I entered NLP, 
it was at the moment of the transition. So it happened to be that in chemistry, uh, in chemistry slash drug design with deep learning, this was a field uh, that was really on the earlier stages. And um, I actually, when I started working with it, I didn't even connect it to the drugs because I was in this exploratory stage. So I don't know what I want to do. And Professor Klaus Jensen, who is a professor in chemical engineering, approached me. He was introducing me by my then department head, Silvio Michali, who is a, a, a Turing Award winner. He introduced me to him because I just needed some machine learning person on their DARPA grant. Uh, related to how to do retrosynthesis, which means to identify the path of generating molecule. And I thought, okay, why not? I will try. And when I started like talking and looking what is available, you know, Tommy, uh, who was my, who from the beginning worked with me and was a collaborator on the grant, we realized it's like really a humongous opportunity here um, in terms of algorithm and, and maybe doing it for a year or two, I look from my window and now I see, you know, from my window, I see Amgen, I see Novartis, I see Moderna from a window from MIT. And it's why wouldn't we connect it to actually drugs? You know, there was a connection. Because I was working on, on imaging and predicting cancer from, from mammograms and other things, but then I realized it's also a potential to do it for therapeutics. And that's how we, you know, kind of, uh, pivoted this work into the therapeutic area. So, um, you know, when I'm looking at this path, it was kind of really no direct path. When I committed to work on, um, you know, on cancer, I thought cancer is, you know, NLP extraction from medical record. It's, you know, deep learning from images to predict, you know, progression of the disease or to predict who is going to get the disease. I didn't even connect this work. It took me two years to connect it. But now mm. this is kind of most of what I'm doing today. That's amazing that you've been able to convert that motivation into really, really useful research uh, program. You're listening to the interview with Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT, an immigrant from Moldova and Israel. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. That brings us to the last segment of the interview, which is retrospective and perspective. Uh, let me start by asking um, what your philosophy is on handling failures and handling rejections, something that all of us academics deal with and everyone in life deals with. And I'm sure you've had your share of that as well. Oh, um, absolutely. And actually converting to this new area uh, was just a spectacular, spectacular list of failures. Uh, for the first failure I already described, you know, when I'm trying to collaborate and nobody wants to collaborate uh, at all. This was like the beginning. And, you know, uh, and as I say, you need to kiss uh, 100 frogs to find uh, one prince. So to me, it took like 1,000 to find one collaborator. <laughs> This is number one. Um, number two um, uh, is, you know, when I submitted my grants to NC, you know, I never had problem with funding uh, before. You know, you, you go through NSF, we all groom to submit the grants. We know how to obtain money to support our research programs. So I kind of wrote the grant to NCI and 
I had a very clear idea of what I want to do. Machine learning was not a big part of it uh, at the time. And I wrote to them, you know, I'm a breast cancer survivor. Uh, like I work with these doctors and I really understand what needs to be done. It's not there. It would help patients. And, and they wrote, I think, you know, a reasonable grant. Mm. Uh, you know, go actually I wrote two. Both got rejected. Mm. Um, and um, so I didn't have money to do research that I needed. Like the students with whom we build all the mammogram works that is now deployed in so many places in the world was done by my student, Adam Yala, who is like really an amazing student because he was an undergraduate and he believed in me. I didn't even have money to pay PhD students to do this work. So he was working with me, you know, from the small money that you pay undergraduate researchers until he became PhD student. But, you know, so all the grants are rejected. Um, the papers that we started submitting, they are all rejected. Um, uh, you know, when I am trying to obtain the data and I'm talking to people, you know, like none, it's like, uh, you know, they would be polite, but it's rejected. Uh, and, you know, and at some point, you know, you, you felt so low that, it, that I real ah, and also, you know, I constantly, what I did, I just, I just couldn't accept it. So because I knew I have to get the data, I have to get the money, I have to get the students. So I just gave hundreds and hundreds of talks. I was just, you know, at the time we could travel. So I would spend, you know, like a singer on the road. I would have the suit or the dress and I would go places to places and, you know, talk and show my own mother and say, we have to have it. And, you know, I did so many things that, you know, I'm just thinking it's like really tiresome to think of those years. And, um, and then uh, I... You know, and then things started moving. So I, I don't know what was that point when all of a sudden things started moving, but they started moving at some point. At some point, we did get access to data, and I got some small funding, and the, uh, the things unrolled. But what I'm trying to say that at that point, you know, there was so much failure. When I felt that I have a mission to yeah. do, that yeah. I stopped taking this failure as something that is wrong with me. Like at some point, I realized it yeah. cannot be me. It is an outside world, so it's fine, you know, it just will take more energy. So to me, the failure is how much energy you need to put to change it. And I, through going through that period, I really kind of um, separated, uh, you know, the failure from my self-perception. It was nothing to do with me. It has to do with, you know, this organization that don't understand. And I just need to put more time. That's a beautiful quote that you just said. Uh, the failure is um, an inability to understand how much effort you need to put to change uh, the thing. I think that's that's very well put. Sort of relatedly, I want to ask about imposter syndrome. Uh, many researchers suffer from imposter syndrome where they feel like a fraud. Uh, sometimes it's acute, sometimes it's chronic. Uh, how do you advise your students and other junior colleagues to deal with the imposter syndrome? So again, I think that my, maybe it's an age or maybe it's like this change in my career. So the way I, when I was younger, I did feel it many times. And I remember when I came to MIT, I, you know, I knew that Shannon was a professor here, you know, professor yeah. scary. It's like, wow, are they all like Shannon here? You know, mm. uh, I'm definitely not Shannon. Uh, and um, uh, there were all these questions, you know, do I belong to this institution? But I think that what happened like later to me, it's like 
I am now thinking I have goals, okay? Uh, so I have goals, I know what I want to achieve. So my point is, you know, I am what I am now, <laughs> correct? Um, I really care to get where I want to get. And yeah. it's an, I, I am just a vehicle to bring, you know, uh, to, to, to bring the group to, to this particular point. Like, for instance, um, you know, we have a lot of diseases like cancer. So there is really no treatment that they, you know, they're little. And despite, the, you know, all the big words that we are saying uh, about AI and healthcare, we really didn't change anything in terms of mortality outcomes and drugs. So there are several nice. areas where I think I have some ideas, my students have some ideas that we believe we can change it. So that what really occupies my mind, how I can make a difference there. It's, you know, who cares if I am smart or not smart? This is irrelevant. You know, the, the, mm -hmm. my thinking is, would we be able to push it through? So again, but yeah. it came with an age and the purpose. That's such an interesting philosophy, um, thinking of oneself as a vehicle for a certain kind of research or a certain kind of work to succeed. Uh, that that philosophy kind of removes um, the I out of the situation uh, and essentially it addresses the imposter syndrome, but also addresses other things and it gives the persistence and the energy to keep moving forward. It's a very interesting philosophy. Uh, the next question I want to ask is a little bit hypothetical, but I'll ask it anyway. So you grew up a little bit in Moldavia and then a little bit in Israel, and then finally you immigrated to the US. Did you ever think that hey, if I had grown up in one country, maybe if I had grown up completely in the US, all else being equal, me being the same person, maybe my life and career may have been very different. Or if I had grown up completely in Israel from when I was a child, my life and career may have been different. Is this something that you ever thought of? I don't think about that. But what I do think about sometimes is like, you know, I was, you know, I think I was very privileged that I've seen so many different people in different countries and different attitudes, and they definitely all shaped my understanding of the world and helped me to be robust, you know, in all these different situations. Uh, but, you know, the part that I am sort of lacking, I feel that, you know, th there are big parts of my life that that's how we started our interviews, that, you know, Kishinev lives in my head. It doesn't look like what is in my yeah. head for decades already. Yeah. Uh, um, and th there are parts that are totally remote. I do not, you know, I cannot go to the school where I studied. I cannot connect to the people with whom I grew up. And that was a really miss. I'm always wondering, you know, how are they doing? Uh, or... You, you know, and I remember some gardens that I really loved. I'm always thinking, how are these gardens? There is this feeling of something, this uh, nostalgic feeling that I have in me. But on the other hand, I'm thinking that somebody who even grew up in Boston, <laughs> Boston doesn't look uh, today what it was in 70s. So uh, this is what I miss. And I also sometimes, you know, think that People who grew up in one place, they can connect to the place in a very different way than those of us who are replanted to these places. And, you know, and I was always wondering, how is it if you're really grounded in your environment and you have all these connections and you know exactly, you know, what this person was doing 10 years ago, which I typically don't. So, but it's just, you know, one of the pathways that could have happened, so... Do you feel that if you had grown up completely in the U.S., your life and career may have been different than what it is? 
all else being equal, you being the same person, having gone through the same experiences otherwise? You know, I, I don't know, because I'm looking at my career, even, you know, being an MIT professor, what will be the likelihood that, you know, doing NLP, being, you know, running the group in NLP, I will jump into totally different area and um, do something so very distinct from what I was doing in my PhD. And I remember there were people, I've seen them when I was like a young professor, Seen there were some people who started in area one and then moved to area two, and it's like, what's wrong with this person? You know, they are really specializing it. Why would they go somewhere else? And you know, the only thing that I kind of realized we really never know where the past will bring us. We don't. And um, you know, you can as well ride the wave. Thank you. Thank you, Regina, for your time and your energy and your effort in in uh, coming on this podcast and for sharing your journey and your story and your experiences. Um, and your thoughts and your philosophies uh, with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. This was episode 30 of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. You've heard the immigration story of Regina Barzilai, professor at MIT, an immigrant from Moldova to Israel and then Israel to the US, a double immigrant. This was the fourth episode in our four-episode segment on immigrants from Israel. You may also enjoy the lead episode of this Israeli-American immigrants segment of our show, that's episode 27, featuring three prominent computer scientists originally from Israel who moved to the US in the 1980s and 1990s. That's episode 27. And also episodes 28 and 29 featuring full interviews with two other prominent Israeli-American computer scientists. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast continues to visit other countries around the world as we talk to distinguished computer scientists who immigrated to the U.S. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.